It was good, everyone. So I did recently a spoiler-free review of Motherless Brooklyn, and the review was pretty much well-received by people who have already hit me up about it, which is great. So I figured I'd go into details and do a spoiler-filled review of Motherless Brooklyn because the movie's so good, I wouldn't mind talking about it twice. So um, the one thing is, I don't want to just tell you the movie verbatim. I just want to pick points in the movies that like really stood out to me. So pretty much, this could be a complete summary, which would be like another short video, because I don't have anyone to talk to about this, I feel like. But if I did, it'd be great conversation for a future podcast. But for now, this is my non-spoiler review of Edward Norton's Edward-directed, Edward Norton's directed, Edward Norton's written film, Motherless Brooklyn. It is a movie set in a 50s New York City um post-noir era now i got a google search uh what era is noir crime fiction in because you got to be specific it is oh well get this film noir is a cinematic term used primarily to describe stylish hollywood crime dramas particularly those to emphasize cynical attitudes and sexual motivations it's like a romantic com not romantic comedy. What am I saying, dumbass? It's a rom it's a romantic crime drama. So, it takes place in the '40s and '50s, which is regarded to as the classic era of film. Um, but it is actually influenced by German expressionism and French expressionism. Oh, I'm sorry, this is all off of Wikipedia. But I did study some of this stuff in college. To uh. Contrary belief. Uh, let's see here. It is a form of French poetic realism, Italian neorealism, American hard-boiled fiction, Art Deco, and French New Wave and Neo-Noir. That's my posh douchebag accent, but uh, let me go back to my normal voice. So pretty much what constitutes a film noir is it has to have elements of crime and romance and be set in a specific era. So, in my spoiler-free review... I said that this took elements of film noir, and it wasn't because it was set in like the 50s or 60s. But now that I know it's actually set in the 50s, it is technically film noir. So anything 60s and upwards is your modern day crime drama that you see on TV. Because if you ever watched, you know, what's a good crime drama from the 60s? You no, know, Starsky and Hutch's 70s. 60s would be more like, um, I'm trying to think. That's hard to think on your foot. Uh, I can't think of crime dramas. I mean, that was like the spy era. That's when we got into like the James Bond stuff and the. Uh... So yeah, we went from like crime dramas to spy dramas. So that's a good. Yeah, I guess that's where the sixties was because I can't think of any crime dramas in the sixties. Um, sheesh, like this is another Google search. Let's see, crime drama films of the sixties. I know they have to exist. This is ridiculous. I just, I just can't think of any. Oh, here we go. In the Heat of the Night with Sidney A. Poitier. The Sicilian clan, key witness, the challenge, bandits of Milan, the creature with the blue hand. There's been a lot, and sadly enough, I don't know any of these films. Call me ignorant all you want, but I'm not that old, so a lot. It even got the freaking uh, McQueen film here, Bullet, Point Blank. I've never heard of The Detective. Well, that's pretty simple. That's Sinatra film, huh? It's okay, there was a lot of crime dramas but apparently they were very much b-movies because none of these like look like classics i mean yes they're classic in the sense that they are oh psycho is considered a drama a crime drama huh that's more of a thriller to me but i guess at the time thrillers wasn't really a term so makes sense why psycho which is one of my favorite films of all time by the way i have not done a basement hotel review i would not be against it but i actually want that to be a conversation because so much happens in that show oh my gosh it's ridiculous um, Stiletto, Blast of Silence. So, safe to say the 60s did not have many crime dramas that actually were um, that big, in my opinion, besides Psycho that kind of sticks out. But you go to the 70s, crime dramas are huge. I remember The French Connection. You had the Godfather series, uh, Death Wish. You had uh, Mean Streets, Chinatown, Dirty Harry. Am I reading off Google? I am. But I know these, I know these, I actually know these films. Like, the 70s, these movies were, like, big in my house as far as, like, 
you know, what my dad would watch on TV. So 60s wasn't, wasn't as potent in my household because my parents were, I guess, of the 70s era. So 70s was definitely their era. The Driver, The Sting, Badlands. Okay, so even there are some niche films. And Taxi Driver, of course, one of the most epic ones yet. Um, the Magnum Force, The Onion Field, The Sting. I don't know why I jump in out of accents. I have this weird thing where I literally just jump in and out of accents. I don't know why I do that. i got to stop doing that being more professional. No, I don't. It's a podcast, not a damn radio show. Do, 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 do. All right, the 80s. Manhunter, Year of the Dragon, To Live and Die in L.A., The Long Good Friday, Scarface, one of the most cult classic films that has been overly quoted and uh, overly uh, loved. Once Upon a Time in America, That's, looks like Bobby De Niro, Gloria, Blue Velvet. Safe to say crime dramas have been an American staple for years, and also a French staple, because French, and also I guess German, because I read that too. Crime in general is a world phenomenon because I've seen a lot of uh, Asian drama films back in the 90s. And um, man, it, it's crazy how much crime dramas have like never... I said this in the previous one, they just never die. There's just something about, well, you know, people will commit crimes. It doesn't matter how old or how young. There's no generational crime. It's like it is what it is. But... uh this film, back to on topic, instead of me just rambling for the sake of time. Uh, Motherless Brooklyn was a tale of a agency in the 50s run by Bruce Willis's character by the name of Frank Mena. And Mena seems like your typical gumshoe, you know, silent type, very, uh, I don't say typecast, but very of the type of, you know, he is your go-to leader, de facto leader, because he is the head of the agency. Uh, he was on a, I don't know if it's a sting operation or a meeting gone bad. Let's just say it's a meeting gone bad. He had a case he was working on, but he did not even tell his fellow associates who are um, in the office with him exactly what it was. All he said was like, hey, be on standby if shit goes south, right? So they're there waiting for things to go bad in case. And um, let's just say is that it was very intelligent. This was not a movie. You just watch Nilly Willy and go in half asleep because you just don't want to miss anything of this film. Yes, this movie is very long, two and a half hours. For a crime movie that seems about right these days, most crime movies are two and a half. I mean, some of the major ones were all about three hours long as far as I recall. But this one, my gosh, it, not that it's dragged. I hate when saying movies drag because I did give it a five-star review in the previous. Yes, I'm giving it a five-star review, and I'll tell you why. It was an intelligent, well-written script, well-developed characters, and it took a twist on one of the things I would have never suspected. Edward Norton, he is the lead character in the story, but he doesn't look like your lead guy. That's the twist. Bruce Willis is the guy who would be in the lead of a crime film because A, he's the leader of said location, like the leader of uh, this um, crumb, gumshoe detect private eye, uh, office. So one would associate, one would associate that he's the guy in charge. But again, this is a spoiler review. Actually, this is both in the trailer. His character gets offed, he gets whacked, he gets smirked, he gets killed while on the job. And the way it happens is, he had a, this is the 50s, so they didn't have wiretapping, uh, smartphones, they didn't have any like fancy gadgets. This is set in realism. So he had a setup in an apartment complex with a phone, a rotary phone, like on. Like Edward Norton was on a payphone, just hearing this whole conversation in case it went south. And then his uh, the driver, who uh, is played by. The dude from Mallrats. I keep calling him that. He was also in Boy Meets World and a bunch of other great films. Um, what is his name? His name is uh, Ethan Suple. He plays a character, Gilbert Coney. Gilbert is the driver to Mena's agency, so in case they got to go on a chase, he's the wheelman. So he's also the muscle, really, because he's a pretty big dude, even. So, so like, if you need backup, him and Norton jump in there. They don't got guns. That's the thing that Bruce Willis wanted to make sure. He's like, you guys don't need guns. 
I got a gun. I'll be fine. Smart and dumb move because if these guys are just, you know, they're private investigators. They are not actual police officers. They have to call the police in case anything does go south. So all they really need to do is just, you know, be a distraction so Willis can escape. And, you know, it's tough to do so because they went on a chase scene. And this chase, you're going from, I believe they were in Harlem, all the way to like, I don't know which bridge. I haven't been in New York in a long time, but they're heading to Queens. I'm assuming it's the Queens Bridge. Uh, uh, that bridge, my gosh, with the toll. Here's the thing about this chase scene. It was a very normal chase scene of, you know, they're trying to take Frank away because the deal went south and they need him for something. So they're going to take him to the dock. So we're going to assume, well, we didn't even know it's a dock yet because the scene, you're just trying to keep up with the car. And obviously, even back then, traffic in New York is trash. Traffic is hard to just move around and also be discreet and not let them know you're being chased. And um, they go to the tolls on the bridge and it's like, okay, we got to go through all this traffic to catch up. But the car that has Frank uh, with the goons, mind you, one of the goons they got that got Frank, this guy had to be as big as like Braun Strowman, the wrestler. This guy was huge, massive looking, lurking German dude, I think he was. He just looked like one of your, you know, he looked like a muscle, like he is a definition of what muscle is. And he was there making sure that Frank didn't pull his gun out on his, um, on his comrades. One of them looked like a Joe Pesci act. Like he looked like if Joe Pesci, like if you ever needed a revival of a Joe Pesci, this guy could be the new Joe Pesci. Like he looks exactly like him. What is the dude's name? His name is Fisher Stevens. Fisher Stevens, if I recall, was the guy from, uh, did he do Short Circuit 2? I think he's the controversial guy that did Short Circuit 2. The Short Circuit 2 was controversial because the man was in brown face. And that's all I know this guy from. But uh, I think he was, let's see, films he's been in. Uh, the Great Budapest Hotel. Haven't seen it, heard good things about it. He was in... Uh, he seems like a very established actor. My gosh, consistently making films. So Short Circuit would have been the 90s. Yep, he was the... Yep, it's that guy. The guy that played the Indian the Indian doctor in the second film. Yep. He looks a lot like Joe Pesci. Especially in this film. The way they just... He just carries himself like that guy. The little tough guy, you know? And um, him, he's the lead. The muscle and some other guys taking him in a, take him in a car. Take him to Queens. And they try to just... Um, Get rid of him because apparently he's got some inside info that he's not going to tell anything. Even in the end um, of the chase, you know, Edward Norton's character, uh, whose name I should just say at this point is Lionel. Lionel is his character's name. I'm not call him Edward Norton. Lionel, um, what's his last name? Lionel Ezrog. Ezrog, who's got a condition where he is. Um, I think it's Tourette's. I don't want to say it's autistic. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. You know, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know. What he, I just know it's Tourette's because he just blurts out random things. So that makes sense to, you know, we assume he, it's Tourette's. Um, but he's got some photographic memory, like crazy memory. Like, you know, something you hear like in uh, like the dude, uh, was it Rain Man or something where he has like great memory for poker? It's kind of like one of those scenarios. This Edward a smart man. Very normal, but he just has a affliction. That's what they call him in the film, where he just randomly repeats words that rhyme with the word that triggers him to tweak. He tweaks a lot. He says that he's like, it's like my brain's rattling all the time, and like, you know, it's a condition. But he's a great, great eye for detail, great memory, also great private eye. He just doesn't look like it. He doesn't look like a typical private eye, because, you know, He's a guy that people would tend to ignore and have in the background. Like, all right, you do this specific task. But he showed up, and he saw Frank get shot. And then when they shot Frank, he fell in the trash, like in the trash pile. He made a mention, like, please grab my hat. Even after getting shot, his private investigator hat was this important. So they put him in the car because the guys that shot him were like, they, uh, I guess they weren't trying to shoot him. It's like, oh snap oh shit what do we do so it's one of those things where like it's something gone south easy as that and the issue with that is that um obviously frank knows some information that he's not willing to share even with his own crew so something is of the uh something is of the uh 
on the mitts. Um, I say that my biggest thing, my takeaway is even almost, because uh, they drive Frank to the hospital. They go to the nearest hospital they find because they're now in Queens. And they're there and he is pronounced dead on arrival as soon as he gets to the operating table. He just loses too much blood. Me, but mind you, he was cracking jokes with the guys on the car ride to the hospital like because they got him in the gut. He's like, oh, I'll make it through this, you know, because Frank is actually a war vet. So he's been through he's been through the trenches. Like, he's not scared of death. He's not scared of getting, you know, any kind of, like, any, into any kind of confrontations because he's just seen it all, been through it all. And um, he dies in arrival. And now this is where the real story starts. It's the morning of Frank. So... They're all going to the office to talk to his um, his wife, I guess. They're all there in the office like, oh, who's going to break the news to Frank's wife? And then none of them want to do it. I don't blame them. It's kind of a tough thing to say. You know, you don't just say, hey, sorry for your lot. You know, it's, it's a close friend of theirs. It's like, how do you go to someone's house and break the news to their wife? And uh, she figures it out. As soon as they get... Sorry, Miss Bucket is my way. She figures it out. As soon as they're like... Edward Norton's character, Lionel, he's like, I'll go. For Frank, I'll do this. And he takes his Frank's jacket because they're like, hey, you can't go out there like that. And the reason he was saying that is because he was wearing like this grandpa jacket, like this, like, you know, <laughs> baseball jacket that most, you know, elderly men wear. I guess back then it must have been fashionable for just casual wear. And um, they, you know, wears, he actually wears Frank's hat, the one that he said, hey, here, take this. And goes and. The wife is played by Leslie Mann. And when that Lionel arrives, she's like, save it. I know what you're going to say. You know, I already know more than I don't need any more, more rubbing in my face or whatever. He's like, all right, all right, all right. So he's there to say his piece and um, bring him his uh, stuff that he had in his office. Keys, mementos, his hat. And she's like, I don't want none of that junk. Maybe just, you know, leave the key in my house. That's about it. And uh, that's the big thing with... Uh, with Lionel, he takes the hat with him because this hat has some sort of like importance to him. Apparently, this guy wanted me to keep the hat as a memento because he's almost like, here, I'm passing the torch to you. Here's my little hat. And then throughout the whole film, this, uh, trying to figure out, or at least Lionel's trying to figure out what is going on with what Frank's last words were because he said something like, Formoso. He was mumbling, couldn't understand. That was the last word Frank said to, um, Lionel before he passed away in the you know the hospital bed, and um, the whole movie he's trying to find out is there a restaurant called the Formoso? So he goes to a restaurant called the Formoso to get information, and um, and there he sees this beautiful blonde lady, nice looking broad, and what he does is uh, he's just chilling at the bar, acting smoothly. He's like, hey, with this older gentleman here, here's a picture of him. Has he ever appeared in this pub? He's like, nah, I haven't seen him recently. So this blonde lady, she's a regular at this bar. You know, walks up to him. Edward Norton's a decent-looking gentleman, nicely dressed with his, you know, dapper, like, detective-like Dick Tracy jacket. And, uh, you know, they're talking. And as they're talking, pretty much, he has a, these, uh, he, uh, what's the word? Not abrasions. He has these afflictions that it's almost like he's got signs of OCD. Now, at this point, you start seeing that he's got signs of OCD. Because the girl, and the, this, is, this is in the trailer, so even if, like, a, I don't know if you saw this scene, it's kind of funny, where, like, the lady's got a cigarette, and she's asking for a smoke, to light her smoke. So he's got a box of matches right in front of him, because that's where the bar, the bar has matches for the ladies to smoke. This is the 50s, it was legal to smoke inside a building at this point. So he grabs a match, a wooden match, to look cool, and then he blows it, like, and then you're like, oh, one more time. And then he does it a third time. So it's almost like this guy's got a weird nervous tick that he's got to do things uh, three times, whether it's tapping something or even saying something. It's just everything in threes. So this turns the, girls, the girl off. Like, hey, this guy's a weirdo. Forget it. So he was trying to get information off or like, you know, where could I go from here? He ends up in, um, after some investigation, he ends up at a, um, a jazz club in, up in Harlem. Now, if you are not from New York, Harlem back in the 50s, it was, uh, I don't know if you ever watched uh, that movie with Eddie Murphy in it, uh, Harlem Nights. It was a, not just a rough neighborhood, but it's where a lot of people went to, to see live bands. Because back then, it wasn't like your modern musician where 
they go into concerts. It's almost like they played every night or whenever they were there for the night and did their thing. So a lot of these uh, jazz clubs, they'll have like a, a, you know, they'll have a lit night on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They don't care. It's New York. People sleep whenever they, they can fit it in the day. So this performer who um, is a good trumpeteer, trumpeter, I don't know what the proper term is. I'm not a musician. He plays a trumpet, the lead trumpet player. This guy's very smooth. He's got that smoky voice because, you know, obviously back then a lot of these guys smoked a lot. So he's got that voice. So he sounds like this. And uh, he's played by the dude from The Wire. I forget my homeboy's name. Michael Kenneth Williams. There we go. This guy has a face that, oh, no, nah, I'm not going to say that face. My mother loves. He just got one of them faces where, like, he's always mean mugging. Dude always looks angry. As happy as he is in real life as a person. In films, he always comes off as this very rugged type. So, you know, he's always been typecast. And in this role, he wasn't really that typecast, per se. He was leading the band. And um, but a lot of the running themes about these, this film is the owner of the jazz club is a war vet. And the whole film is pretty much, you see scenes of a giant um, backlash from vets coming back trying to like get back in society and do their thing. But also, this is the time when New York was building a lot of bridges. So on another scene, it goes to Manhattan where you see the silhouette of a giant older white man. You don't know who his face is, but he looks like he's a man in power. And he's a man that doesn't take shit from anyone, not even the mayor himself. And he's part of the borough committee. This borough committee is brand new. They created a brand new political post, one that's not mandated or voted in for this guy who's an architect that builds bridges. This gentleman is actually played by Hollywood's favorite big shot, bigger than life actor, Alec Baldwin. And Baldwin plays the role just perfect. Baldwin looks like a guy in power. He looks like a guy who doesn't take shit from anyone. He's very much, you know, don't fuck with me. This is how we're gonna get shit done. And um, he goes in storming because he didn't get a certain position signed off. The mayor signed two out of three proposals that he didn't sign the third one. So this movie's very uh, politic heavy. And in crime films, politics plays a large portion of how crime runs because power, money, respect. If you don't have the power, you don't have the respect, you can't make any money. It's just the logic of how it worked. Especially in the 50s, where positions of power were very important because there was no social media. There was no internet. You couldn't become a YouTube sensation. You couldn't become an overnight success. You had to work your way up the ladder, old school way, rub elbows of the right people. And of course, you know, turn on people left and right just to get where you want to get in life so you could be successful. And um, his character is... Your stereotypical big shot, Holly, you know, almost like Wall Street like guy. But you can tell he came from a blue collar family, you know, very normal guy, had to earn his keep into the career that he chose. And um, it was one of those things where um, his character was foreshadowed to be the main antagonist of this film, with kind of not being the forefront, but kind of being the background, being more talked about than being in it. So in Norton's case, he ends up in this office. Uh, I believe it's a black business for um, helping people of color with uh, discrimination in the workplace because it is the 50s, which is before, right, probably right before the Civil Rights era. And um, he's looking for a lady that, because his words, his, his words were, there was a colored lady that uh, Frank Mena was talking to about something that was tied to the case that got him killed. And she is played by... I'm not. I'm gonna butcher this name, Gugu Mbatha-Ra, who is. That's a. That is the actress's name. The actor plays a lady by the name of Laura Rose, and lovely young lady, very dashing. Um, she's there because she runs this office, but also is probably the lady that Frank kind of got information from that led him to that meetup that led him to his demise. So Edward's trying to, Lionel, sorry, I keep saying the actor's actual name. Lionel was trying to get with her and, you know, talk to her about, like, how he, how she is tied up in all this because she's fighting a good fight, whereas Frank was just another guy doing, you know, another gumshoe on the job, so whatever. So 
comes to find out that in the film you find out that you know she is a daughter of the jazz club owner that uh, that uh, the trumpeter guy was at, um, and uh, you know she they, they kind of like I don't want to say go out, but as a protective person that he is, he takes her out to just see how things are in her daily life and give her a ride from her workplace in Brooklyn all the way to her house in Harlem, and. I guess someone broke into her apartment. So now you know things are getting real because now people are breaking into houses. So since him being a private investigator, she was scared to be home alone. And, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Nothing crazy happened because, you know, this is the 50s. You know, women weren't that, like, sexually, you know, inviting. It was more like, please keep me company because I don't feel safe here. Oh, the reason he shouldn't feel safe is because later on you find out after, um, Norton gets kicked out of the jazz club for talking to the owner's daughter. Um, he gets beat the crap out, out of by um, a lot of the uh, musicians in there. And I don't think it's a race thing because there are white musicians in this club. I think it's more of a, um, they know who, he knows who he really is because he played it off that he was a reporter to get information off her to help, you know, tie the bureau um, committee with some sort of like false things that are happening in the city. Some sort of like, you know, Larceny, grand larceny, that grand larceny that is happening the, between you know, you know, you know how it is the government stuff like trying to like make, steal money from the city and whatnot, because the guy was hiring within his own crew of people, so like the money's going back to him, that kind of scenario. So the whole thing is, she's part of this, um, um, I don't know what to call it, rally, I guess you can say, of uh, people protesting this. Um, I guess building for new bridges that are ripping down old neighborhoods that uh, people have been almost like gentrification, the beginning of gentrification, tearing down good neighborhoods that people have been there forever. I think this is the Bronx neighborhood of East Tremont that at the time was a Jewish neighborhood. So this lady, her name is uh, Mrs. Horowitz, Gabby Horowitz, played by the actress of Cherry Jones. She's also in the same fight to the you know keep the neighborhoods neighborhoods before you know gentrification and. Uh, it destroys them to build, you know, bridges over. So that's definitely one thing that makes sense, even in today's times. Like, why are we constantly build destroying down neighborhoods so we can just build these, uh, you know, bridges just to get to and from the city for people with money who probably live in, like, I don't know, Long Island or Jersey or, you know, in uh, upstate New York because, you know, neighborhoods constantly get destroyed all the time in real life. It's just the uh, facts of life. It's pretty dreadful and this is where the realism of this whole thing is it's like why are they constantly trying to destroy um established neighborhoods of people of color specifically just so they can build these giant elaborate bridges for more people with money to come in but i can you know it's one of those scenarios that's what the fight is about okay so the movie is pretty much a lot of uh intrigue and uh, deceit and twisted turns here and there um the associate partners for lionel Elrog. um one of them is a great actor um uh, tony cannavale who um is a famous uh puerto rican italian actor who is very much similar to mena's character i mean bruce willis character mena because they are cut from the same cloth he's very not secretive but very uh, reserved on where he speaks speaks when he has to but he definitely talks like somebody who's got some stuff to hide like he gives you what you need to know and um he's very like smooth talker like the whole time he's just very much trying to uh, smooch you into getting things done his way so you know that's his character right there but frank's also very secretive himself he's very much got plenty of skeletons he's never spoken of before either well known for keeping secrets himself not saying much about himself. I mean, we know he's a war vet. He uh, fought the Japanese. I'm assuming that's World War II. And he's taken a bullet in combat. But he's still able to work in, as a full-time uh, private investigator. So you can tell he's not as affected by the war as other people have who might have lost limbs or their lives. Let's just say it. Um, so his character pretty much is, again very stone cold, but also very secretive because as anybody knows anybody in the military, they're very good at keeping secrets. 
and he doesn't share much with his boys, even though they're cool. And they're all investigators. No one ever really investigated Frank's life, which is, like, again, has an aura mystique to it. But don't these guys all, essentially, it's not so much all of them, just two out of four of the agents in this agency. So we're talking about this case where we're trying to figure out who's the guys behind Frank's death. What's the purpose? Is it mob ties? Is it uh, something else? And it's a lot of shady characters um, that nobody ever wants to easily get into. They're all afraid. They're all definitely afraid of if they killed Frank, they're going to gonna hesitate to kill us the lesser guys in this agency let's save our own asses it's no offense to frank but he did die because he didn't ask for help soon enough he didn't tell us anything to help him out he was very much a lone guy even though he was part of a team because he was the only one who knows what happened so even the cops are like well what can you say to help out it's like, we don't know we don't know he didn't say much but formosa so Formosa ended up being a place that he went to where, he, where um, Norton's character, Lionel Elrog, went, met the girl I mentioned before, blonde, with the whole, you know, trying to light a cigarette thing and that gag. And then he ends up at a jazz club in Harlem where he meets the beautiful actress. Again, it's her name just slips my damn mind every time I'm, I should be on top of this. Uh, Gugu and Batha Ra playing Laura Rose. So Laura Rose, and that leads to Laura Rose's dad or uncle. I'm not sure what he is at this point. At the, you find out he's just an uncle, but he's treated like a father figure. And um, he was also a war vet, but he actually had his hand blown up in combat. So he used to be a trumpeter, a really good one, apparently, uh, as uh, the trumpet man who played by Michael kind of. Uh, Michael Kenneth Williams mentioned that uh, he was the best. And when he came back from the war, he came back and played a different person. Personality was not there. This is a guy who was very, you know, positive thinking forward. But of course, war will change any man. So the whole movie is pretty much a wild goose chase because it, towards the end of the film, you just pretty much find out that this guy who was behind it was the. Well, here's how it goes. We're in a meeting with uh, Horowitz trying to fight against the borough, borough committee for building more bridges in neighborhoods that are thriving. And, and she even said it, I'm calling it people of color, you know, brown and, brown, brown and black people are getting moved away because they want to build bridges. And they're making it seem like these are slum neighborhoods and it's like improving the, uh, you know, improving the city. Really, you're not. You're kind of just not, you're, you're just, again, gentrifying the areas. Not even gentrifying because you're not putting people there. You're trying to put bridges there. So just trying to destroy neighborhoods just to build bridges so strangers, can, more people can come to the city and bring in cash. That's the main thing. And then the audience is this guy, Willem Dafoe. You can tell it's Willem Dafoe. Even though he has a beard, I can tell it's Willem Dafoe. And Willem Dafoe plays Paul. Paul is a really interesting character. Because you got Edward Norton, Lionel Ezrog, who's got a Tourette's and a photographic memory. Then you have a guy like Paul, who um, is fighting against this bureau, almost instigating a, a uh, argument, a quarrel to happen, right? With uh, the committee, like, hey, you guys are doing this, you know, instigating, and they kick him out. So Lionel goes and actually chases him down and says, um, what kind of information do you know? Like, do you know this guy personally? Because the way he was talking to the guy played by, um, by um, what's his face, by Alec Baldwin, Moses Randolph. It's like he knew him. And then um, he goes on a tangent, just saying a bunch of things, like how he could bury him, how he could throw him out. And the crazy thing about that is that um, he's, a, I believe, an engineer and also a professor in the college. So I guess he helped with the building of bridges at one point before he was either let go of the project or whatnot. But once you find out that Lionel Ezrog is um, investigating Paul and really looking for his background, you find out they're actually brothers, apparently, that Paul is the brother of Moses Randolph. 
bet they lived two completely different lives and lifestyles. One went the straight hour route, and the other one went for the power trip that came with becoming the bureau head of the bureaus, I guess you can say. The um, and also the other two positions that were giving him. So you know, you got one brother who's the nice guy, one brother's a dickhead, and they just don't get along. It is what it is. But there's more info of it, right? And um, as the whole movie's you know progressing, you find out that the reason that there's so much hidden information is this is the 1950s. You find out later on that Laura Rose, the beautiful young Laura Rose, who was the daughter, quote unquote, daughter of the owner of the jazz club, is not the daughter of the jazz club's uh, owner. He's he's a niece, but he's actually. Here comes the plot twist. Moses Randolph's daughter. That twist was like, what? Uh-huh. Apparently, as most um, white men in the 50s were with power, a lot of them had a lot of affairs with random women. And I guess at one of the clubs they were at, um, Laura's mom was like a hot waitress. And... Can we say that, uh, what I say is, hot waitress, and, uh, you know, they, he, they had a love child. The whole movie is a lot of this, like, hidden information stuff. Then you find out the hat, like, that was the part that got me, uh, caught up in the film when they talked about the hat. They're like, hey, so what exactly is, uh, Formosa or all this other jazz? You find out there's actually a little tag hidden in the rim of the hat that um, there was so much pertinence for uh, Frank Mena to give to um, Lionel. And the hat was actually a a key hiding in it with like a little ticket to a locker at Grand Central Station. Goes to open it. It's a deed. A deed to a house. Mind you, everyone assumed that all the stuff was going to go to his wife. But at this point in the movie, you find out that Tony Bramante, who's the great, you know, I don't want to say kiss-ass, but he's like the great, you know, like, guy in charge next to Frank, the closest guy to Frank, was cheating on, well, his wife was cheating on him, on Frank with him. They were having an affair behind his back. That's why she had no reaction, really not a big reaction, when Frank was dead, because emotionally she wasn't attached to him anymore. There was a lot of shit going on back, you know, in, in the background. It's like... There was, and that's when you find out Tony is tanked, uh, tied up with uh, Moses Randolph. And he's just trying to like take the hush money and it is what it is. What's done has been done. But no, Lionel Ezrog has a conscience and he has a moral compass. And he just he wants justice for Frank because Frank's never done him wrong. One of the few people in the world who have never treated him like anything other than a person. Because of his affliction that makes him look weird. But Frank never cared about that because he saw beyond that. So, at the end, you got the scene where they're like in a cafe and Lionel knows that he can't trust Vermonte. And he's just there like, I don't want anything. He's like, yeah, let's get a drink. Let's have a drink. Like, they're pushing this whole let's have a drink talk. Just trying to, like, get him to believe in hush money and take it as well. And uh, all of a sudden, let's just say this. Um... Uh, you have you have this moment where Lionel can either take the money, start your life. He already has a deed to a beach house. He's all set. He doesn't need any more of anything. He can just make things disappear. And instead, he throws the hot coffee, I mean tea, at, uh, at, um, at Vermont's face. And they had this nice little chase sequence. Then he finds out they're chasing the girl. And at this point, Laura and him had a rendezvous. They've actually emotionally connected. And they're trying to kill her because she's a loose end. And she's also a dirty secret because this is pre-civil rights era. Interracial marriage is nowhere near the norm at this point. And this guy is a man of power. Like, what would these other, like, guys think of him having a love child with a cocktail waitress from a jazz club, you know? And mind you, she has a powerful position. She is no fool. You find out that Paul was actually protecting her by making sure she lived a normal life, got a great education. 
you know, even for all the racism she dealt with in New York City at the time, you know, slight racism, East Coast racism, that's like, you know, you get the side eye, you don't get a seat in the train, little things like that. She was a respectable member of society. Her and Horowitz were really good leaders of the, this movement to um, preserve neighborhoods in New York. And she made herself amazing and she didn't care who her real father is. Her father was the guy that she knew who was a real father, which was the jazz level owner. It wasn't, didn't matter. It's like, it's, it's, it's like, you're, you know, your father is who made you, but your dad's who raised you, which is really deep. And uh, I believe that this movie was a great message to like, in the end, Lionel had all the, he had all the trump cards to take down and blackmail uh, Moses for money, but he refused to. All he wanted was to be left alone, for Laura to live a normal life, and for him to, um, he was able to listen to um, Moses' ideal of a better society. Like, if it wasn't people who, like me, we would still be living at a certain age. Like, even though he's not very conservative and not progressive, his ideals are very much in the realm of, like, Let's make money and let's grow an infrastructure and let's make this city bigger and better so it helps everyone out. My takeaway from the film is essentially that Moses is um, very much similar to his brother in the fact that he's passionate and driven, but he goes about it a completely different way. Where Paul is more of a standard thinker which is ironic because he's been labeled the progressive of the two his brother is more like no i'm gonna get shit done my way or the highway by fighting the establishment and ergo becoming such established see paul goes to these i don't want to say rallies but he goes to these uh city hall meetings and he definitely speaks his mind but He's afraid of losing his own status within his own world, I guess, as a professor or whatever, by becoming this uh, symbol. But he gives um, Lionel all this information so that he can use him as a surrogate that does all his dirty work for him so he doesn't have to get his hands dirty at all and keep his nice, clean record as a professor pristine. Lionel is doing all the things that he wished he could do to bury his brother for him without looking like a jealous you know, envious sibling because he doesn't want to come off as that way. But he knows his brother's doing wrong and doing dirt. And he's just like, you know what? I'm not getting into this because he's family. That's another thing. Maybe because it's family. He doesn't want to bury his own family. But he's not against his brother receiving karma. He just doesn't want to be the direct reason behind it. Maybe, you know, for their parents' sake or their own, you know, to not to make a discord amongst themselves. So I get it. It's like if you're if you had a family member that did something you didn't like, it's one of those morals compass things. Like, do you really um, do you bury them because they're because they're doing the wrong thing, or do you like put family first no matter what? Back in the fifties, it's not like now. Nowadays, people are more well spoken and more outgoing, and you know all this and that. Where back in the old days. It was really rare to see people speak up like that. This was like a new turning point for America. This was like a revolutionary era. You know, civil rights movements and all this stuff was like, it started off slowly. It didn't happen overnight. People were very much settled and you keep your head down, you know, your nose in the ground and do your work and eventually good things will happen to you from merit. But when the issue isn't directly like if doing so, Let's just say this. It was not Paul's responsibility to take care of his niece like uh, like a surrogate daughter. Yes, he's an uncle that should help. But for his own brother to deny his daughter because she's black, that's just stupid. Even back in the old days, he didn't want to lose a status among these uh, very racially closed-minded individuals because he had a daughter, A, out of wedlock, and B, because he's in a position of power, and, you know, I get it. But B, from a different race, and she wasn't even, like, of an elite established class. She was just a regular cocktail waitress. So it makes him look weaker for being easily manipulated and whatnot. I don't know, whatever these social standings are for, uh, of the times, you know, it's like, you're dating, and I even just a commoner. Hold on, I need a mint. 
not just a commoner, you're dating somebody who's a, you know, at the time it's a thought beneath him. Bitch is ridiculous because color should not merit your status. But this is the 50s in America, you know, people were pieces of shit back then. Not that, like, not like they're not now, but you know, at least back then, it was a little bit more uh, transparent, one would say. Granted, the last couple of years in this country has become very transparent. But you catch the drift. These were times where if you're a man of power, you weren't even seeing what a white cocktail waitress, let alone a woman of color. So it's one of those things where he has his daughter. This is like his deep family secret. Mind you, his daughter is an established, well-educated woman fighting the good fight who only just wants to be seen and respected by her peers and loved ones. It's not even asking for money from her actual father. She doesn't even know this guy was her actual father until Lionel said something. This whole time, she didn't care. She knew her mom and she knew her uncle. As far as the, uh, the father that she never really got attached to, why would she even care? But the one thing I really took from this film is I realized how shady government officials are. No, not that I didn't know before, but let's be serious. You're so desperate to keep your status that you would literally put aside a family, a secret family, because you're not proud of them. You're ashamed of creating the secret family. That you would go through so much trouble as to kill people to keep your skeletons in your closet than to just let it air out in the public. Because then you would get taken out of this borough community, uh, borough community uh, committee and toss aside because, you know, they'll give the mayor will give any reason not to have you in the committee because they don't want this to cut to the media. But towards the end of the film, either way, guess what? Plot twist. It got out. It got out. So all this running around, all this bullshit of just, like, trying to cover all your um, loose ends, it bit him in the ass. And I loved it because he tried to, like, he tried to be like, uh, what do you call it? He tried to bribe uh, Lionel into taking this money. Now, if you've seen the whole movie, you know Lionel's a guy of merit. This guy was gonna be, was offered by his own uh, boss um, some bribe money and uh, good things, and you know he don't gotta worry about things if you just let it go. Let this Frank Mena case go. His case closed. You know, his wife doesn't give a shit because she's sleeping, was sleeping with this guy. So obviously, she's not looking for justice. So who's this for? Who are you doing all this trouble for? And it's really Edward Norton. His whole his character, Lionel, is more like um, a surrogate son. Or I'd say brother. Surrogate brother to um, Bruce Willis's character, Frank Mena, because... He was raised in a Catholic orphanage. These guys are all raised together. These are guys are all orphans who had nothing. And Mena took all these like uh, outcasts and they all grew up together like besties. So there's a brotherhood there. But the fact that one of your own brothers sleeps with your wife and, and unintentionally sets up his, his, your own uh, murder because it wasn't supposed to happen. It was a... a uh, a, a sideways because even the guy that shot him uh, played by uh, I forget this man's name uh, by Fisher Stevens Lou Lou had a face of shock and awe when he, when he when he killed him but he didn't know what to do at this point Mena did not back down he's not easily scared even with a big lurch muscle on the side and being surrounded this guy survived war He's probably seen things he never spoke of, let alone, you know, commoners trying to come up and trying to muscle him. You can't scare somebody who can't be scared. So, out of disparity, killed him. With, mind you, the messiest death ever because he just shot him and left him for dead. And granted, CSI wasn't big in this era, but you had witnesses, men as, men as own guys do the research, and it wasn't that hard for them to find who they were. And then what does Lou do out of disparity? He goes and hunts down the 
uh, Rose, Laura Rose, he goes and hunts down this young lady who doesn't know a thing. But because he thinks Lionel told her everything. And this is the point before Lionel did tell him everything. He went and saved her just in time. Thanks to Trump man and his uh, jazz crew taking down Lou. It was a great action scene on this building. I loved it. It was a pretty like, elaborate fight sequence as they go up through the apartments. And uh, the lurch guy ends up, you know, on the rails of the fire escape. And it was Laura herself who, like, threw a, <laughs> very comically threw a potted plant at him. He fell and, and, and fell to his death. So after all this trouble, just trying to cover Lionel's, Ezra's footsteps, Moses failed. And, 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 and I mean, Lou failed. So there go, Moses failed. So the only thing he had to do is the sequence where he's in the pool. Same thing happened in the beginning of the movie. The pool's where he's like, he reflects on life and like exercises and lets out steam, I guess. He's there sitting on the side of the bench saying, what do you want? I mean, what is it you want? And that's the part where I, I liked that uh, Lionel kept in, like into character. He didn't switch up like, well, you know, I could use some money. No, he didn't care about it. He just wanted his friend to get justice. And that's what he did. In the end, he did get a reward. He got the house. If the deeds were in his name. And you see him and Laura looking over the horizon of the sea or ocean and re reflect the day they've had. Because it seems like all this current, all these events happen within days, maybe one or two days apart from each other. From going to Brooklyn to find this girl. From going to Harlem to seek her history and then, you know, get beat up by the uh, jazz club owner to then know that his own, like, boss, well, second in command, was keeping an eye out for him because he knows he's that good of a private eye. And even he didn't underestimate Lionel's uh, attention to detail and great memory because Tony Vermonte was a scumbag who just thrived off, you know, he was easily bought easily manipulated, manipulated and easily um, tempted by Minna's wife, Leslie, the beautiful Leslie Mann, who, I get it, I get it in this era, there wasn't much way to track cheating spouses, there was no, there was no GPS on phones, there was none of that, it was just payphone era, it was just hearsay, see, you know, you see people do things, and that's the thing with this crew is out of these four. I, there's one guy I didn't mention. I keep forgetting the guy. He was part of the crew. He was uh, he was helpful in starting to help Lionel at the beginning of the film. But later on, he pretty much got beat up, but not killed by Lou's guys. And was told, like, as a warning, don't keep looking. Because if you keep looking, you're going to ask for it. So he was smart. He's like, I got a wife and kids. You guys want to do this? Be my guest. As far as I'm concerned, this case isn't my problem. Uh, my respect to Mena, but I can't do this. And Lionel was at least nice enough to be like, I understand where you're coming from. You have a lot to lose. I have nothing to lose. But he actually gained so much from this. Newfound confidence, a potential girlfriend slash wife, and obviously control of the agency because it's kind of funny how all this became a uh whatchamacallit became a uh it became a justification not a vengeance or journey but a justification of you know vindication there we go it's it vindicate mena's death and baldwin had some of the most best quotes in this film i don't know them by heart i don't want to butcher it but seeing this movie was really good because it gave me insight on why men of power do things they have to do out of disparity to get things done. And it's for self-preservation. It's what it is. So this movie was very intelligent. But again, it went over a lot of people's heads. And should I give it a less of a rating because of it? No. Movie that's good is going to be good regardless whether someone gets their trauma or doesn't. Because there's a lot of great artwork in, in life that people don't get. And years later, a new generation understands where they're coming from. Art is one thing's very subjective. Filmmaking is structure-based, but still subjective. And as a subjective reviewer, I loved this film. I wasn't bored through it. It was a little long, but of course, crime films, films are all pretty long. I just probably had a long day and was tired. 
But it was, no, it was fun. It was a great film. And you know what? I'll see it again eventually. I mean, it's one of those movies I might even own because it's so well produced and well written. And I hope Edward Norton makes more films like these because we need more noir films, more crime films. We need more films with depth. And Martin Scorsese was very well spoken about how he hates the superhero genre. That's his opinion. It is what it is. But I think it's because he likes to see movies like one Edward Norton's written. He wants to see more movies that are more fleshed out, story-driven, and not just about action, you know, action and uh, and in, intrigue, yes, but not just straight-up action. And I get it. I completely understand. Because films like these are always going under the radar. Not making mil millions and billions of dollars. But they're very well executed. And I would not rule this out of Oscar contention because it's really well done. And it's based off a book. So the fact that Edward Norton took a book, turned it into a, an epic screenplay, which became a great film, it's not always easy because you're going to have that audience who have read the books and are going to compare it, but you can't make comparisons. Everything is going to be its own interpretation. You cannot completely adapt a novel that's meant to be read in hours at a time with a film that's only two and a half hours. So maybe if I read the book, I might not like it as much. But at the same time, I'm not going to go out my way to read the book. Because I didn't even know there was a book until I looked it up on Google. So I'm not the biggest bookworm. I like reading. But at the same time, I'm here to see a film as a viewer who's never seen the film, who saw a trailer on TV, and is like, you know what? This looks fun. So there we go. I enjoyed it. And I got to say, a lot of people will also enjoy it. Of course, it's a wordy film, so if you are exhausted, if you are easily impatient and want to get to the ending, because I know the anxiety of some people are like, all right, let's find out who the killer was, let's find out who's behind all this, it's going to drag a bit, but not in a bad way. It's going to give you time to really think and kind of like join in the game and become like your own, you're, you're the, another private investigator in this agency. So that's a fun part about this movie and like murder mysteries Technically, this was a murder mystery. It really was. Because it was a crime film discovering the murder of the key character that was the main purpose of the film. And it was amazingly well executed. And I love it. I gotta say, I can't wait to see more work from Norton if he adapts more great crime novels into films. Because this is definitely the world he likes to live in as well these days. And after a while... As much as I love superhero movies, I'm not saying superhero fatigue is real, but everyone's got their own thing. Everyone likes to, ex everyone excels at their own thing. Not everyone wants to do giant block. I'm a huge fanatic of blockbuster films, but we just need a little bit of a difference, like thrillers, dramas. It's also the start of the holiday season, so you're going to see a lot of family-friendly films out there. They're more cheesy and more lighthearted and not heavily toned, like something like this. But it's nice to have some other stuff because you're also in contention with the upcoming holiday season and also Oscar season. This is the time of year. You're going to see some blockbusters here and there. A lot of Oscar bait films, what I call them. But you're also going to see some great written thrillers as well because it is, you know, the fall slash winter time. And it's great to see a lot of different types of films, not just popcorn films. It's just get your money in your pockets. The films to see and you're like really fall into a world and put yourself in the shoes of characters and you find similarities of things you like from previous films of its set. Like, I like many crime films from the old days, but I'm glad that we have one today so we're not just living in the past talking about the same old crime films. We're talking about current ones that are happening in, in 2019 going to 2020 or even further, of course. So thank you for your time. This movie was awesome. I left a lot out because I'm not here to interpret the whole damn movie. And of course, this is the spoiler review. This is thus my perspective of what I've saw from the film. Things that stood out the most for me, for the most part. I'm not going to talk about intricate little details. It's like the chase sequences. I like that there was some action in the right points where it mattered in the climax. And also the beginning just to set the tone for the rest of the film. Uh, great writing, great actors. Um, oh, I never gave credit to the guy that played the... Uh, the agent that was uh, bailing out early. I think the guy's name was uh, something Dallas. 
let me uh because i want to give his just to his character uh was really well done he he was just there for like as a, not a tool i hate using the word tool but using as a not a mechanism but he he was there as a um liaison to how dangerous this case was and um his name is uh dallas roberts he played danny fault he's like this ginger-haired guy very straight you know straight laced gumshoe guy he's a little t timid he was a great character in this film because he was there as the warning shot to um lionel's character of do you want to persist and take the path that's going to lead you to because you will get hurt or worse or do you want to let it go because of fear and he did not let fear get to him and that shows the bravery that lionel's character has because Nothing was more important to him than some good old-fashioned justice. Thank y'all for listening, and uh, keep it tuned for the next one. Thank you.